Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk. I am super excited for you to join me for today's episode. I have a very special guest, Dr. Desta. Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for coming on. So do you mind introducing yourself a little bit about your background and what you do? Yeah, so look, like you said, I'm Desta and I'm a black queer therapist on TikTok and I'm also an immigrant. Um, so I've been on TikTok for a little over a year now and I've been prioritizing trying to make social media um, and utilize it to help make mental health more accessible. So as for my credentials, I just got my PhD in clinical psychology and I also have my bachelor's of science and my master's of science in psychology as well. And now I'm a postdoctoral fellowship at a hospital and I'm working towards getting licensed this fall. All of the things, and we were chatting before we uh, hit record about when you get your doctorate in clinical psychology, you get a piece of paper, but it's not over. (laughs) Not over. The tests do not stop. (laughs) There's still so much more to do, but that is super exciting. You hit such a huge milestone here recently. So congratulations on that. That's great. Uh, Thank you. I was really excited to also kind of celebrate that on TikTok as well. So like the community that we've been able to build, everybody was able to see me graduate. Exactly. I know. I loved your photo shoot. (laughs) I also love the photo shoot. (laughs) So what are your clinical interests? Yeah, so I have been prioritizing um, my specialty in reproductive and perinatal mental health, um, interpersonal trauma, including like medical trauma, sexual trauma, chronic pain and illness management, and then stress and trauma associated with being marginalized by society. And I primarily worked in hospitals um, and I love working in hospitals mainly because I always say I, I, I can't be alone on a team. So I love working with physicians, OT, PT, and all of those other disciplines. And I learn a lot from them. And I hope that I also educate them in the process about what we do. I work in a hospital as well with children. So different age frame, but um, I love working with a team as well. I feel like it really helps give patient-centered care because you're having a whole team working on you and assessing things from all different angles. Oh yeah. I love the wraparound care of just being able to have every discipline in a room. So I work in like primary care, people that are receiving chemo or dialysis. I've worked in the COVID rehab unit and ICU. So being able to have every discipline in the room, I feel like is really just showing extra support to those patients. And I give you all the kudos to working with kiddos. I am an adult person through and through. Um, So I give you guys all the props over there. And I give you props working with adults because my interaction with adults is usually parents and guardians and how do I say this nicely? A lot of times, 
it's a, a good reminder that I am meant to work with kids. <laughs> Let's yep, put it that way. That's fair. That's a good way to say that. <laughs> but there, we need people like you and people like me and people that work in geriatrics just to, exactly. you know, full lifespan. Exactly. Um, so today we're going to be talking about marginalized communities. So first, would you mind describing for listeners what it means to be part of a ma- marginalized population and then why you are so passionate about working with and talking about marginalized communities? Yeah. And I love that question. So I think what the way that I described um, kind of being marginalized by society is that like I hold certain identities that have been classified to a powerless position within society. So throughout history, these identities have been excluded and pushed away in terms of access to education, resources, access to healthcare, quality healthcare, access to safe neighborhoods and economic stability. And the reason why I'm really passionate about that is because of the identities I hold. So like when I, I say this a couple of times on my social media, like when you're marginalized by society, your existence is resistance. So me being able to exist in this world is proof that I'm fighting against the powers that have put me in this place. So I love who I am and I wouldn't change who I am for anything in the world. My culture and community has a rich history and I love it. And my identities forced me to look at the world in a different way. And because of that, I've seen and I've witnessed what silence can do and silence just being a form of being complicit and complacent. So that's why I'm very loud on my social media. I, I like to say that I, I'll fight for everyone I see. I'll amplify the voices of others because I've seen what silence can do and how it normalizes a lot of the marginalization that's already been done. So that's kind of how I describe marginalization. And I think it, it's great for us to talk about it in our fields because I don't think it's talked about enough. I completely agree. And you are loud on social media, but in a very well-spoken, educational, informative way. Like I have learned so much from you just watching your TikToks and getting to know you on social media. And every time I watch you, I'm like, what she is saying is brilliant. And like, there's so much passion behind everything you talk about. And I love, I know sometimes you'll like <laughs> say like, oh, angry dust is coming out or whatever you, you yeah. still, <laughs> even when like that fierce passions behind it, you are so eloquent and you get the point across like so clearly. And it, I, I've learned so, so much from you and I appreciate learning from you and you showing me other people, especially as a white woman born and raised here, right. um, existing in this world. I know our um, perspectives and worldviews are very different just because of the identities that we hold. Exactly. And I think it's it's been amazing being on TikTok because I think it does lend that, um, that platform to educate, but it also has opened my eyes to a lot of things as well in the areas that I hold privilege. And I've learned so much from other creators that I just feel so, I'm so honored to be connecting with all of these people. And I think that gives me even more of an opportunity to just then speak out to the communities I'm in to speak on issues that I may not face, but issues that I've heard people talk about on there. Exactly. So this is a very broad question, (laughs) Um, but can you talk about some of the challenges that marginalized communities face in the United States, particularly? 
Yeah. And that, and I remember I was just thinking about that. Cause I'm like, there's so many things, so many things. And I think, like I said, I work in a hospital. I think the one thing that usually comes to mind is just a huge gap in prevalence of like chronic health conditions and life expectancy. Um, I think COVID was a really big example of that, especially since that's hitting more BIPOC communities at higher rates. And as someone who does reproductive and perinatal mental health, BIPOC women are more likely to die from pregnancy related causes. Um, I think, even COVID showed us that economic stability is an issue within marginalized communities and they're more vulnerable to those sudden financial changes, which we've seen. I mean, we've seen a lot of the last 18 months, but I think that was also a pretty big one too. Uh, and just the, I, I've, I've also worked in prisons pri- previously. So like the overrepresentation of us in forensic settings um, in the homeless population, uh, people who experience violent crimes against them, people who are in foster homes, um, the school to prison pipeline, all of these things I think are such big psychosocial issues that I would love to see our field just talk about more. I think sometimes we think that um, mental health is maybe split off from some of these psychosocial issues. And I think that they're so interwoven that it's our responsibility to work on some of these things, both systemically, but then also with the patients that sit in front of us. Oh, definitely. And one thing that you just said, like kind of mental health being split off, I think, and this is just my experience, and I would love to hear um, your thoughts on this, working with different mental health professionals, especially social workers, I feel like social work as a field does better than clinical psychology at recognizing the, and recognizing and addressing the interconnectedness between mental health and these more systemic socioeconomic, sociopolitical issues than clinical psychology um, specifically. Because one thing like I have said a bunch of times, but I remember having this um, client when I was in grad school um, who I was seeing for chronic illness actually, but like did not have money to pay electricity bills. House was not up to um, code basically for lack of a better term. And this was an adult, like I did have to work with adults, was fearing that her child would be taken away because of these issues. I can't work on chronic pain with you if your basic needs aren't being met. Like that's asking me for for you to do like a calculus problem when you don't know basic addition. Exactly. And I've been in that case, especially with like trauma cases where I'll, I'll get um, some trauma cases in it, but it's working with people that may be having a lot of food insecurity or maybe um, are having housing instability. And it's like, I, as like, that is maybe step, step M. Like I want us to deal with like getting you access to food and, and healthcare and making sure you have all of these different things. And I think the biggest way I see that on my team sometimes is we have a case manager and I I love our case manager and she's awesome. And she has all of the resources and it's like, and I also don't want all of that burden to fall on her for all of our patients Mm -hmm. that she has to find all of these resources for. And I think that kind of then sets up this like divvy of like, okay, well, we're working on mental health and they're working on resources. When I think we can kind of share and share that load and understand it. I also think that sometimes that stops psychologists from learning about the resources in our own area. Um, If we're like automatically giving that to another profession, it's like, well, we don't even know what's in our own backyard then to support our own patients that's in front of us. So I think it requires us to take that extra step to learn more about what, can help the patients that we see. 
Oh, definitely. And I, I totally resonate with that because as somebody that works in a hospital as well, like social work and case management do the resources for exactly. us. But I tell, um, I'm close with a couple of the social workers, like colleagues, but also I feel like we have a friendship. And I'm like, if you're ever overwhelmed, like, and you need especially like mental health resources, like mm-hmm. I can do that. Like, right. I mean, I should... And I should be able to do that because I should know the resources available in the area. Working at a hospital, like not everybody's coming from our town. People might be coming from two hours away. So it doesn't make sense to say like, oh, yes, I'll follow up with you outpatient when that's going to be a burden. Um, And something else you said, too, that I wanted to highlight. And you mentioned it like earlier on um, and kind of alluded to it when I asked about the challenges, it's just this overall theme of access Mm -hmm. and the access disparities in marginalized community, whether access to healthcare, but that's a big one I think of um, a lot of times, and I'm sure we'll touch on this, but I know, you know, for the LGBTQ community, access to competent providers, inclusive and affirming healthcare is limited, resulting in them not seeking out healthcare a lot of times. Exactly. Um, exactly. And not just, yeah, because not just access to healthcare, but quality healthcare, mm-hmm. being able to have someone that's culturally sensitive and affirming and grounded and being able to validate who they are. And I think the biggest thing I've seen with a lot of my LGBTQ patients is, is a lot of the stereotypes of the community. And I've noticed this a lot with my, my um, trans patients or my gender diverse patients of just a lot of transphobia and stigma mm-hmm. and stereotypes coming from providers to patients. And our job then as the psychologist or mental health and behavioral health of having to advocate for our patients, even within the interdisciplinary team. Yep. And then having to also then take on that additional level of like, I'm going to educate the other providers in the team of what we are going to do to treat our patients with respect and dignity. And I think it's become even more prevalent when I, when I notice this is specifically like how different our education is with these types of topics. Um, Like psych, we I don't know how it is at your hospital. I'm noticing for at least us, mental health and behavioral health are more on the diversity, um, committees than maybe other disciplines are. Um, and I, and I, I was like, I know they have their own different educations and I value it. It's, it's, it's just, I would love for all of us to maybe be more prevalent in these committees. So I, I try to educate in our interprofessional education meetings, um, about some of these topics too. Definitely. Which is kind of a good segue into what I was going to ask you about next, um, which is some individuals are part of multiple marginalized communities. So for example, being of a racial, racial or ethnic minority, as well as part of, part of the LGBTQ community. So can you speak to some of the unique challenges individuals who are part of multiple marginalized communities may face? I love that too, because I, I love intersectionality so much. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw is someone I've, I've read so much about since I was in high school and she coined the term in the eighties. And basically her point is that all inequality is not created equal. And the idea that people hold multiple social identities. And because of that, all of these various forms of inequality, discrimination, systems of oppression, they intersect and they operate together. So for example, I am a black queer cis woman. So I don't just experience racism or sexism 
or homophobia. I'm subjected to all of these at the exact same time. And I think the way that we've seen this, especially in our society is like queer and trans people of color at higher rates of violence in comparative groups to maybe just a single oppressive group. So if it's just maybe cis black men, or if it is, um, queer and trans white individuals, those are very different than queer and trans people of color who are experiencing an epidemic in our nation. I I think the human rights campaign, there's already over 30 people that have been killed solely because of their identity. And then what happened in Atlanta at the beginning of the year, the Asian women that were murdered and the race-based violence that they experienced. And when we fail to look at those intersections of race and gender and sexuality and um, even immigration status, ability status, we're at risk of this, um, I think Camille Crenshaw calls it intersectional erasure, which essentially means that we're at risk of invalidating their identities of just seeing someone, for example, if someone were to look at me as solely black or solely a woman, or solely queer, then they're missing that my unique experience that I have with those multiple identities and how I am subject to hold multiple forms of oppression against me at all times. And those people that have the multiple identities, those are the voices that we should be highlighting and amplifying and centering in these conversations because those are the ones I, my mom always says like, we're not free until the most marginalized ones of us are free. And they're the ones that are most likely to be pushed aside. And I think that's why we need to be giving them the microphone the most out of all of us. I absolutely love that you brought that up. Cause I mean, you've seen it on social media. I've seen it on social media where, I mean, any marginalized group gets pushed aside or they're used, but I, I mean, gosh, at this point, it was probably months ago. I have no idea. My, time means nothing to me <laughs> anymore. <laughs> I have no idea when it was, but I actually made a video about that. Like, cause you, you know, I make a lot of LGBTQ content, mm-hmm. not being part of the community. And mm-hmm. I'm glad my voice can be heard to educate, but my voice is not the one that needs to be at front and center stage. Um, talking about those issues. I'm glad I can educate. I'm glad I can provide knowledge, but my videos are the ones getting pushed out compared to somebody that actually, um, we need to be listening to. Exactly. Um, I feel that way about like when I share issues about that are things happening to native and indigenous people. And I, I'll share the videos that I also try to make an effort to do is like maybe duet or stitch or make sure I have them also in the video. And cause I, I do see that sometimes my videos are pushed and I'm like, I'm not the voice that should be heard right now. And that is the hard thing about social media is it really does pick and choose which videos go farther. And that has become somewhat of a trend that a lot of the people talking about psychosocial issues and that are within those communities, those videos are, are quieted. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And that's why I think, I mean, you just brought up like duetting and mm-hmm. <laughs> anybody listening that's not like on TikTok is probably like, what are they talking about? But like being able, I mean, to duet mm-hmm. those voices at least may get those videos pushed out a little more, or at least those creators recognized. I know like I have found a lot of accounts from you duetting creators that never come across my for exactly. you Exactly, that never come across. And some people that I'm just like, 
I'm like for them having maybe large followings, I'm like, how do you never show up across my, my pages? And now that I've found so many people, I've also been trying to make such an effort to just talk to them too, outside Mm -hmm. of the app and just message them and get to know them. And possibly, I know some people I've done um, maybe collaborations with them too, just also to hear from them. Exactly. Exactly. And there are ways to get those voices heard. Um, But, and I mean, I, I also, and you can obviously tell me if I'm wrong or you feel differently, think as out, and I know we're going to talk about this later, but like as allies to the community, we also need to be speaking out Mm -hmm. but it's a balance yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's like it's like oh it's a dialectic um um (laughs) we love them (laughs) it's like I definitely was like don't say the word that's stuff but it came out um but it's it's like sometimes like I I I had this so I'm also a professor and I when in one of the classes I taught I said that okay so at sometimes like the community needs to speak and I think it was around the time of George Floyd and because the, the students were just like, you get to speak, you get to speak. And I was like, thank you. Like that, that is, that is definitely a part of the dialectic that the community gets to speak. And another part of it that I always talk about with resistance is this idea that sometimes the community is tired. Like I was like, in that moment I was exhausted. And I just was like, I cannot speak. I've lost, uh, I've lost the power to speak right now. So I'm going to give it over to an ally and let them kind of handle this conversation while I over here, like take care of my mind, body and spirit so that I can continue the fight in the future. And I think it's, it's that balance of knowing like when to hand over the microphone and then checking in with the community of like, do you need to rest? And if you do need to rest, let me take the the load off of your shoulders so that you can rest and I will speak up. So it's like, it's definitely that interesting balance between the two. And I love the, is it really an analogy of a microphone? Because like when you think of rallies and stuff, there is actually somebody speaking up. There is is actually a microphone. (laughs) I like the kind of visual image I got. Mm-hmm. when you just described that, like literally passing a microphone, like I'm exhausted. I need to protect my own mental, emotional well-being. Exactly. Now it's time to pass to you. You speak up while I am able to take care of myself. And when I'm ready, I'll take the microphone back. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's, it's a hard thing because it's, it's, and that's kind of speaks to also the difficulties of knowing when to take the break. A lot of, a lot of um, people in marginalized communities we're taught to like always be fighting, but knowing when to take the break is the hardest thing. And knowing when to pass the microphone when you just need to rest and seeing that as a, as a moment of strength, like I'm doing this because I'm trying to take care of myself and not a moment of weakness. I love that. And once again, a great segue into the next thing I was going to ask you about, which is just mental health in general. Obviously, we both have our PhDs in clinical psychology in the field, and it's psych talk, so I always want to bring in mental health. But regarding mental health, what are some challenges or barriers that marginalized communities face with regard to either accessing care, receiving diagnosis or diagnosis discrepancies, stigma, et cetera. Once again, a very broad question, floor is yours. <laughs> well, and I think like minority stress, just being like the three ways of it being unique because it's not usually experienced by non-stigmatized people. It's something that's chronic and then something that's socially based. So something that is 
not only just by one person, but by institutions and structures. And I think that's why mental health looks different. Granted, mental health conditions do not discriminate, they affect everyone, but because of the historic and current oppressive systems, it makes it harder for people to access mental health treatment just in general. And that can be because of like, like we were saying, like cost of insurance and just income in general, that income disparity, and people just don't have time to take time off of work, or maybe just don't have time to pay the copay or don't have the ability to pay the copay. And then provider insensitivity, discrimination. Um, I've seen that happen a lot with misdiagnoses. I've seen some like BIPOC children are more likely to be diagnosed with externalizing disorders than to be diagnosed with internalizing or autism or ADHD, or even like BIPOC adults are more likely to be diagnosed with psychosis or schizophrenia rather than a mood disorder or PTSD. Um, and then I think the way that I see that the most in my care is, is in what I've seen at hospitals is treatment dropout is they're just lower satisfaction with services and they're more likely to drop out of care prematurely and they're not allowed to they or they don't really get treatment benefit because of just the way that they're treated by providers. And then I think just the general structural barriers like something like transportation. Um, like as someone who I do not have a car myself. So, um, and I didn't realize how much that, that was an issue until now, until the pandemic. Um, and then I was like, oh, this is something that I now have to figure out of how to get around. And when you put that in addition to mental health treatment visits, it's like, well, I don't have the ability to get there. I can't pay for an Uber. I can't pay for a Lyft or the train or the bus may not come to me. Um, and God forbid, if you live in Minnesota or another state that gets really, really cold in the winter, it is hard to walk. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like that, that is another issue. Mother nature is not on our side, but then also not knowing where to access those services, like not knowing who to call, not knowing that I'd say that some people can get mental health treatment in primary care. Some people don't know that they can do that. Um, and then lack of childcare or even not having an interpreter available and hospitals maybe are, we have more resources to have interpreters available, but maybe smaller community practices or private practices may not be able to. So that's such a difficult thing that really just, really just stops people from even coming through the door. And I think that is what is perpetuating the increased suicide rates in, in BIPOC adolescents and LGBTQ adolescents. And that's like the acculturation of migration stress and trauma that people go through in the immigrant communities, the, the hopelessness and the, the feeling that of worthlessness that has been increasing in a lot of activists, because it is a lot of, a lot of work that's being put on their shoulders without feeling that they can take a break or without feeling that they have a provider to take a break with. So it's, it's a lot of those things that then is just puts on their shoulders to take care of themselves if they don't have someone that they feel comfortable enough to talk to. Thank you for all of that. And I love that you brought up interpreters because that's something I think we don't think about a lot. And like, I know in our hospital pre-pandemic, we had interpreters come in in person um, right. for, for like Spanish and French, like more frequently utilized um, languages, mm -hmm. but then had iPad access otherwise. Um, and then switched to all iPads to reduce like face-to-face -face people coming in and out. But right. one thing, and, and I recognize this in myself and something that um, I need to work through, but like, if I get a family in the hospital <clears throat> that's Spanish speaking and I have to use an interpreter, 
I already like feel a sense within me. Like, I don't want to say like dread or discomfort, but like doing therapy via an interpreter Mm -hmm. is not the same relationship. It's Mm -hmm. hard. And a lot of times, not always, I've had some really successful sessions. I feel like a lot of times people, whether it just be their beliefs about mental health, whether it just be discomfort with having to talk through an interpreter, I don't get as much. And I don't like me as the provider, I don't feel like it's therapeutic. And I imagine then that's going to turn people off from continuing seeking care if they're like, well, this is awkward that we have to talk through somebody. I don't feel comfortable sharing these really intimate details through somebody on a screen. Um, And then also, even though hospitals have resources, we have um, like, we have a few families that have come through that speak the Chu dialect. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we have like one interpreter that is able to do that. And so like, or like when we've had Russian families come through, like when you Mm -hmm. have languages or dialects that are not as commonly seen, then -hmm. trying to find an interpreter or, I mean, there, there's just so many barriers. And I think that's the hardest thing too. I, 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 anytime I have an interpreter, I think what I've noticed in both like forensic settings and medical settings is the instant feeling of there's a third person in the room that I was not anticipating that was going to mm-hmm. be there. And it's that moment of, of trying to build rapport through an interpreter is is challenging and requires like that extra, like that extra, that extra step that I, I also recognize as an immigrant. I'm like, I see even within my own family, if they had to talk within an interpreter to a provider, how much are you willing to tell the provider now? Because another person is hearing it. And then also the dialect thing is the hardest because even with Spanish, um, like just the different dialects within Spanish. And then I, even for me, so I, there's so many dialects within my, my first language that sometimes they'll be like, do you speak this? I'm like, no, 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 no. Very different, very different, but you're right. It's like, there's very few resources available. And I mean, like we were saying right before this technology woes. Um, <laughs> so like I've had it where the iPad goes out and then you're just like, Okay. I'll figure this out. And, and, but it really does. It really, then it's like, we, we got to be on our, our a game of in problem solving that brings up that psychosocial issues of how do I problem solve this to have a plan B and a plan C. And just so that we can like, just finish this intake. Like I just, I just would love <laughs> to finish this intake. That is just my goal right now. Um, or even if it's just, I just want to finish this therapeutic building right now. I just want to build this relationship and maybe we finish the intake at another time, but and I think that then kind of aligns with just in general, the mistrust in the medical community that, that people have in the medical community and mental health community. I mean, historically, because of Henrietta Lacks and Tuskegee, but then even most currently, I mean, I remember reading the article about Dr. Susan Moore, who was trying to advocate for herself regarding her pain and none of the providers listened to her. So I know like a lot of marginalized patients just have low perceived need that they don't think that they need services, mainly because they don't think that they're going to work. Mm-hmm. or that they'll be listened to. And I've had many, many black and brown patients specifically say, I don't want to go to mental health and I'm not going to tell you the truth uh, because mm-hmm. I'm worried about the, the police getting called on me or I'm worried about being taken to the hospital. And 
the biggest thing is how many police brutality and violence calls are across the news because they've had a mental health crisis and that happening and then we and then we're just like that that is supposed to be our our resource but because they are not trauma-informed and have their own systemic oppressive views and history and so many things but um that our patients don't want to tell us the truth now and I'm just like that that that's always a hard thing to come to terms with too Oh, definitely. And one thing when you said trust, um, going back to the interpreter thing that I was thinking about, which is a worry of mine, but I also imagine it's a worry of the patient on the other side using the interpreter is trusting that we're getting accurate information because it's going through a third party. Because I have had situations in the past where like, say the, cause I work with children, maybe the mm-hmm. child speaks English or like a sibling's there and they speak both English and the, um, first language of the parents. And they'll be like, that's not what they said, or that's not exactly accurate. And like in life, when we're having a conversation with two people, when they're first or first language is the same, or both are fluent in said language, right. we still interpret things through our own lens and perception. Exactly. Yes. So then you <laughs> add a language barrier and a third party conveying the message. Cause I know there's been times I've had like an in live interpreter and I've said something they've interpreted they said something back and then like say what the patient said back was you know a minute worth of talking the interpreter would tell me like one sentence and I'm like there's no way (laughs) that that information is exactly what was said and I mean I'm not blaming interpreter because I could not imagine being a medical interpreter by any stretch of the imagination. And holding all of that, I think, but I think that also speaks to the, uh, maybe one of the other barriers is a lot of our words don't, don't translate well. And I think that just speaks to kind of like the DSM and a lot of our treatments and are just Westernized, very Westernized. And if I think back to like my culture, I'm like, there may not be a direct translation for some of these words like stress and trauma are the same thing kind of and yeah. when I think about language and I think that then comes up a lot with getting information from the interpreters if they may use a word and I I may mean something completely different because it doesn't translate well we're kind of getting concepts rather than direct translation and that I, I realize like always then I I try to I encourage people from within those marginalized communities that speak multiple languages to become clinicians, Mm -hmm. because I think that cuts out a lot of that concept and more of like that, that full idea and take that cultural nuance behind some of the language that's just missed when there is an interpreter because they, they bring it to us in English. And it's like, but I feel like I'm missing something. I mm-hmm. feel like I'm missing something that's a big part of my patient's picture. And part of me then I'm like, I feel like I'm doing a disservice. And I think that then I have to, I, I try to include then other clinicians I know from within other cultures. I've had to do that with a patient getting a lot of cultural consultation, maybe with my patient, um, with someone that I'm just like, I just want to make sure I'm not missing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that's really important to them. That's just not coming across in direct translation. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. Um, and I know we could talk about this forever. So this will probably be the last random thought that got brought up. But also when you're just talking about like, not direct translation of language, for some reason, the thought of just like, um, 
cultural norms and like in some cultures, things mm-hmm. like seeing things, which we consider psychosis. We were talking about Westernization, which has come, yeah. come up is very normal. And mm-hmm. you're seen as maybe, you know, you have a special gift mm-hmm. um, or it's like a religious practice. And like, so somebody walks into a hospital in the U S happens yeah. to endorse something when the clinician says, do you see or hear things? They're like, yeah, it's, oh, psychosis. And it's really not because in their exactly. cultural tradition, that's the norm <laughs> mm-hmm. or other and things I, too. But that was the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> well, and I think that speaks to also kind of like our treatments because our treatments are very like our evidence-based practices are primarily with white participants and they're primarily created from this Western perspective of these diagnoses. And I've met a lot of clinicians previously that are a little apprehensive of integrating a lot of maybe non-Western treatments or maybe um, integrating religion, our patient's religion into treatment, or even talking to the community members about treatment. I've had times where I've had to speak to imams and I've had to talk to them with my patient's consent of like, what does this culturally look like to treat a problem like this? Or even talk to maybe some elders within communities and asking like, let's bring all of us into the treatment room and try to talk about what this looks like. And I think mainly like that speaks to that cultural insensitivity sometimes that providers have of not being willing to, um, to ask those follow-up questions of like, oh, you do see and hear things in what context? Yeah. Like talking to them more about that. And then even bringing it back to this idea of like, are you willing to bring in the community? Are you willing to bring in the faith? Are you willing to talk about non-Western treatments? Are you willing to have them talk about things that maybe don't align specifically to our diagnostic criteria mm-hmm. and like talk to them about how they would solve the problem, how they would define the problem, how people in their community would solve the problem. And then how would you try to integrate that into your treatment plan rather than just being like CBT, like (laughs) CBT, psychosis, antipsychotics done. Right. It's like, instead of all of that, I'm like, it would be so much easier. It'd be so much easier. And they would also be more on board with you if you're going to be willing to be like, yeah, let's talk about how to add your religion into this treatment plan. Like I've done a lot with like Christianity and mind- mindfulness. Like, yeah, let's do some contemplative prayer. Like I've talked about the five pillars in my treatment plan. So it's like, let's try to integrate all of that. Um, and it, of course, it's not that the clinician needs to know everything about every culture, but it's just a clinician's willing willingness to do that research mm-hmm. and talk to people within the community themselves. Exactly. Okay. So <laughs> I know we're getting close to the end of our time and, but I, I know we could talk about that for forever. I love this conversation. Um, but, and we've been kind of talking just about like things that clinicians can do, like be willing to educate themselves, consult, things like that. So what can we do as a society or on an individual level, even if it's not clinicians listening to advocate for and make changes to the inequalities that marginalized groups face? in the U.S.? I think the biggest thing I always tell people is like first realize that it's not going to happen overnight, that it's going to require, like, it's not going to be one action. It's going to be consistent and constant effort. And I think for the people that do hold privilege, I think being willing to accept the corrections 
that the community will give you, being able to acknowledge, I think especially within medical and mental health, being able to acknowledge how our field has negatively impacted marginalized patients, and then doing a lot of self-reflection, even outside of being a clinician, anyone just being a lot of doing a lot of self-reflection and asking yourself, what are your values? What are possible biases that you might hold? And then how does this influence your interaction with people? And asking yourself the hard questions, being willing to find comfort in the discomfort, but then also taking the time to educate yourself and then hold your community accountable. And I, I, I can never, like, I can never stress that enough of holding the people in your family, people that you see on a daily basis, hold them to the standards that you would hold yourself to. Because we, I, I, I was telling a friend of mine this, I was just like, I don't want you to say something in front of me and you think that it's okay. And then you say that to somebody else. So I'm going to check you right here. So this doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we could do in our field more. I think like another thing our field can do is not only fighting for the patients that we have and the people that walk through our front door, but the people that don't have resources to even come to our building and like society as a whole, um, we need to, like I said, be intolerant of the intolerant and like fight back when we see something is wrong. Like as clinicians, we have a privilege. This is a de- like just getting my degree. I'm seeing the privilege that this degree gives me and this going back to the microphone, medical, the microphone. Um, <laughs> and like, that means that I have to make this commitment to fight within this field and examine this field with a critical lens. That's why I examine the DSM and, and the diagnoses and the treatments that we've been given with such critical lens and adapting it and changing it as I see fit and being able to fight for policy and, and whatnot and being able to advocate and reach out to the people in our community. But then also the biggest thing too is not speaking over those marginalized communities. And that speaks to what we were talking about on social media, but it's it's sometimes like knowing that balance again of like, when am I supporting, but when am I speaking over and being able to listen and reach out and listen to their perspectives and being able to change that balance. Like I said, like, if I've been given this privilege of having a doctorate degree, then okay, I'm going to use my privilege to hand over the microphone so that the voices can be heard because this is not, like we're saying, this is not my experience. So y'all need to be the people leading this charge until you are tired and need to rest and then give that microphone back to me and then I'll take it. Um, And then really just having to do the work in every aspect of your life, like personal, professional, because I think, and I've talked about this a lot on my page, radical genuineness goes a long way. And our patients can see when we're only doing things in maybe one area of our life because it can come off as performative. And being able to say that how we are doing this self-reflection in every aspect of our life, fighting for systemic change, fighting for individual change, and being able to have receipts, like put our money where our mouth is and show them that this is something that I genuinely care about rather than this is something that is performative. So I think just showing that you're willing to do it in every avenue. I love that, all of that. And I love how the microphone analogy keeps coming back I'm holding on to it. (laughs) If that's all you get from this episode, remember the microphone. Um, (laughs) But yeah, no, and I like how you ended on like at every level. Mm -hmm. It's not just posting, I'm going to bring this up, a black square on Instagram. Yes. (laughs) It was, it was so, I was like, what are we doing? <laughs> and then 
pretending like nothing ever happened. Um, mm-hmm. It's not, you know, sharing one article mm-hmm. and or making one TikTok or doing your mandatory cultural competency at work. Right. Because and you I have think- to do it. Exactly. It was, it was when George Floyd happened, when with the race-based violence in Atlanta happened against Asian women, there's, there's, I, I said this before, there was a spike in talking about these things. There was a spike in people mm-hmm. talking about it. And then it died down. And the people within those communities, when we see things dying down, it's like, no, wait, like this is still happening. Police brutality is still happening. Police violence, uh, race-based violence, these are all still happening. And it's when you see the squares and it's just like, no, but more change needs to be happening. And I think that's even, that speaks even more so to our patients, because I, I remember when George Floyd happened and a lot of people were asking our patients, like, how is the, how are you being affected by that? But then afterwards, like for the 18 months afterwards or for the year afterwards, that question wasn't really being asked. And it's like George Floyd still is, is resonating throughout our community, but a lot of those questions weren't being asked anymore because it wasn't the three months after it happened. And I think that speaks to then, we always have to talk about this with our patients, not when something big happens in this world, because there's always going to be something big that happens, unfortunately, but it's always talking about it as a day-to-day thing, as if something just happened type thing, and then also a systemic thing, bringing it up with our patients on every level, because I think that's going to be a breath of fresh air for them that they can talk about those things. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So is there anything I have not asked you about that you would like to touch on as we're wrapping up? I'm like, I don't think so. But (laughs) I think the only thing I'll have to say to my clinicians is like, just do something like just, we're not shooting for perfection. We're aiming for participation, like resistance and advocacy is it's our privilege. It's our responsibility as clinicians. And we, if we want to be fighting for our patients, we need to be fighting for every aspect of our patients. And I, I know we can do it. It's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take some sacrifice, but we just got to be willing to make that effort and make that sacrifice. So I hope, I hope that we continue to get on this train. I hope we align more with the social workers on a lot of social justice. Um, we're getting there. I feel mm-hmm. it's getting in that direction, but we still got a long way to go. It's a dialectic. All right. I'll say dialectic twice. Everything's a dialectic. <laughs> Um, no, I love what you just said about um, we're not asking for perfection, just participation. Because I yeah, mean, just like as a white clinician, I know I will never be fully culturally competent mm-hmm. in non-white <laughs> um, exactly. ethnic backgrounds, racial minority. Like I won't, but I can educate myself to mm-hmm. provide the best care I can not being part of that community, but I will never be fully competent because I am not part of that community. Exactly. Um, and participation is, is just the first step. And also, um, like I said, being willing to accept correction and being willing to apologize. Yeah. Like, I think that's something that's missing in our society in general is just being willing to admit when we're wrong and not be defensive, not try to fight back or, or, like have those invalidating statements, but really just being like, yes, I was wrong. 
And I'm sorry about that. And there's a lot of power behind that when you are able to do that. I think when we have areas of privilege, that's something that's really important to, to, to say, yes, I am wrong. I've had to do it in areas of privilege that I hold mm-hmm. of being like, yes, I messed up and I need to take a back seat and listen more. And I need to I need to hear these people and I need to listen to their voices, amplify their voices and educate myself in the long run. And I think no one is exempt from that. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone has a chance that they should listen to people that hold less power than they do. And it's something that I think that we can continuously work on as a community. And I'm just hoping we continue to just listen to each other. Love it. So the final question I ask everybody that comes on is where can people connect with you? Yeah. So I'm on TikTok and Instagram and my handle is my underscore destination. So D-E-S-T-A-N-A-T-I-O-N. And then I have a website that I created that's also linked in my TikTok and Instagram. This website has um, therapist directories for marginalized communities, um, questions on how to make sure a therapist is a good fit, list of mental health funds, and then self-management tools. And that's www.mydestination.com. And with that's without the underscore so m-y-d-e-s-t-a-n-a-t-i-o-n.com <laughs> and I love your website I have uh definitely referenced it um before so it's 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 great <laughs> um so well thank you Dr. Desta I know we were talking before I hit record and she was like I'm not used to this <laughs> it just happened it just happened, but you earned the title. So I'm going to call you Dr. Desta. Um, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation and sharing your knowledge and expertise and own experiences. And um, it's, it's been great. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really love just having conversations like this. And thank you all for joining for today's episode of Psych Talk, and I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. This episode of Psych Talk was brought to you in collaboration with Dive Through. Dive Through is a mental wellness company that helps you dive through what you go through. Dive Through has an introspection app, which includes guided breathing, journaling, and reflection. I have been using the Dive Through app for almost a year now, and it really helps center me when I'm feeling overwhelmed. Their website includes blog posts on a variety of topics from emotional well-being to personal growth to parenthood and the LGBTQIA community. They have a free anxiety guide created by two licensed mental health professionals, as well as other mental health podcasts. To download the app, click the link in my show notes, and for more information, visit divethrough.com. That's D-I-V-E-T-H-R-U.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.